0: for the last eight minutes that you've been talking, but, you know. I'm only six minutes, so Seven, actually. It, this is on, Chris. Okay. All right, guys, we're going to get started, okay? Um, we're running a little bit behind already. Sh- shocking. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to go through elbow injuries this morning. Again, I have, like, 15 minutes to go through all of, Elbow injuries, so we're obviously not going to get to everything. Um, I'm going to try to touch on the most common things, and also some of the things that you guys are going to see on your board exams. Okay, so with that, quickly, when just like when we talked about wrist films last week, I want to talk about reading elbow X-rays real briefly. Um, everyone knows about fat pads, okay? Stilly, what what do you know about fat pads? Yes. Yes. So you can have, you normally can see a small anterior fat pad. If it's larger or billowing out, they call it the sale sign, right? And what about posterior fat pads? Yes. If you ever see a posterior fat pad, that's abnormal. Do you know why you get those? Yeah. So you get, you get some sort of a, either a hemarthrosis or an effusion within the joint capsule. The joint capsule swells and that pushes the fat pads out. So that's why you see those. And what's the importance of those? Yeah. So if you don't see an obvious fracture, but you see abnormal fat pads, then you have to assume there's an occult fracture there. Now, the presence of fat pads doesn't rule, or the absence of fat pads doesn't rule out a fracture either. Okay. So if you don't see any fat pads, you can still have a fracture. Okay. But if you see them there, you have to assume that there is one. And that's just a closer up view of that. I know it doesn't project all that well, but. All right, second thing you look for is the radial capitellar line. Okay? So when you look for that, you essentially, on the lateral view, you want to make sure that there's a straight line that goes from the center of the radius through the capitellum. And there's just another view of that. And then on the AP view, same thing, uh, just uh, when you draw a line through the center of the radius, it needs to intersect the capitulum, and that just helps you look for alignment. And then you also look at the anterior humeral line, okay? So when you draw a line down the anterior surface of the humerus, it should intersect the capitulum with at least a third of the capitellum anterior to it, okay? All right, so that's all we're going to talk about x-rays. We're going to do some cases now. So first off, um, Dr. Kemp. Is this an adult or a kid? Okay. Is it a normal x-ray or an abnormal x-ray? Okay. Um, okay. Do you see any fat pads? Oops. Okay, yes. So there's a posterior fat pad there. Great. Yes. So in a kid, if you see a post – if you see, don't see an obvious fracture – But you have either the posterior fat pad or a large anterior fat pad. You need to assume a supracondylar fracture, okay? And essentially, with the supracondylar fracture, it's the most common significant elbow. It's the most common elbow fracture in pediatric patients, and you need to suspect it with a consistent history and a consistent physical exam with either X-ray that shows a supracondylar fracture or one that shows the abnormal fat pads. So the reason that we care about these fractures so much is because essentially there's a lot of important stuff that lives right in the elbow, right? So when you have a displaced fracture like this, you can have injury to either the brachial artery or the median nerve are the two most common uh, structures that get injured with this type of fracture. So in these patients, it's really important to do a good neurovascular exam. Make sure you document. Um, presence of good pulses and perfusion. And you know, in little kids, sometimes it's hard to get a real good thorough neuro exam, but at least, you know, document that they have sensation and that they can move everything. So, this is just another example of a supracondylar fracture. You can see on this one, I drew in the anterior humeral line, and you can see how the capitel is pushed backwards. Okay? That's the most common direction that you're, if you're going to have displacement, that's the most common direction for it to be displaced. There's actually three different kinds or three different types of supracondylar fracture, type 1, type 2, and type 3. Type 1 is if there's no displacement at all. So this is the one where you see the abnormal fat pads, but you don't see any fracture. This one here is a type 2. So you have disruption in the anterior cortex. So you can all see how the anterior cortex there, you can actually see the fracture, but it doesn't extend to the posterior cortex. And then a type three involves both the anterior and the posterior cortex. Okay. Um, treatment for these, if it's a non-displaced one or a type one where you just see the just the fat pads or you see a fracture that's non-displaced, they can be put in a posterior long arm splint, and they need to be seen by ortho within 24 to 48 hours. Now, depending on where you read and who you talk to, some resources say that they should actually even a non-displaced one should be brought into the hospital for neurovascular monitoring just because even if there's not displacement there because of the swelling that can occur in that relatively tight space with the brachial artery and the median nerve, some places would say that you need to actually bring that person in for, for monitoring. If it's displaced, they have a much higher risk of neurovascular injury. Again, it's usually posterior displaced. These are ones that you certainly are going to want to talk to an orthopod about before you would send home. Generally, any displaced ones gets brought into the hospital for monitoring and possibly surgical fixation. Okay, Any questions about those? All right. So, Jesse, normal or abnormal? Okay, Adult or kid? Yeah, so it's an adult. So if you see this, so this is an adult that comes in with elbow pain after falling on it, you see this x-ray, what do you think? Yes. So you don't see any obvious fractures there. It looks okay other than the fat pads. Okay. okay. So what injuries do you or what injury specifically do you worry about with that, do you know? So we're an adult now. So in kids you suspect a supracondylar fracture, in adults you suspect radial head fracture. Okay. So it's a very similar situation where you don't see an obvious fracture on the X-ray, but you see these abnormal fat pads. In kids, you suspect a supracondylar fracture. In adults, you suspect a radial head fracture. Okay, and again, with this, there, again, there's three different kinds. There's the non-displaced, the displaced, and the comminuted. You still get the same with Correct. Correct. Okay, because you still have the hemarthrosis, right? So your joint capsule is in the same anatomic location in kids versus adults. So you get the same looking fat pads. It's just because of the differences in, in the relative strength of the bones versus the ligaments, um, or excuse me, in the different the relative strength of the different bones in an adult versus a kid, you get more likely to get a supercondylar fracture versus a radial head fracture. So this is just another x-ray. If you look at the one on the right, you can see the posterior fat pad, right? And then if you look at the one on the left, can you guys see the radial head fracture there? So if you look, this one's blown up obviously. And on the on the left side of it you see it there? Right on the articular surface. Okay. So treatment for radial head fractures, if it's non displaced, there's really not a whole lot you do about these. You can put them in a sling for a couple days, but then they want to start you want to start early range of motion. So there's really, like I said, not much to do about them. Pain control, and make sure you emphasize that they need to start using it within a couple days. Um, if it's minimally displaced, you can do essentially the same thing. Okay? If there's more than three millimeters of displacement or it involves more than 30% of the articular surface, they'll likely require operative fixation. And if it's comminuted, so we all know what comminuted means, right? Um, the ortho will either oftentimes excise it, just take it out, or they'll put in a prosthetic implant. Something else to think about when you guys have somebody with a radial head fracture is this Essex Lopresti lesion. Have Anybody heard of that before? No? OK. So it's, in a way, it's kind of similar to a Mesa new fracture of the lower leg because you'll get a fracture of the radial head with some disruption of the intraosseous ligaments between the radius and the ulna. And you can also possibly have a disruption of the distal radial ulnar joint. Does that make sense? So, when you have someone with a radial head fracture, you want to make sure you do a good wrist exam, and you want to make sure that you at least palpate along their radius and all that to make sure that they don't have significant tenderness or laxity, laxity there. And the reason that's important is because these people benefit from internal fixation. Okay? Yes, he is. It's the most common way to actually sustain this injury. Over where? Exactly. Exactly. You don't. You don't need to get an X-ray. But if they have wrist tenderness, then I would. But just because they have a radial head fracture, you don't need to go back and get a wrist X-ray if they don't have any tenderness. All right. So, what is this poor child, due to very poor parenting skills, going to get? A nursemaid's elbow. Yep. That's Joel. Oh, you're talking on the left. It's supposed to be my daughter, not so much Joel or my midsections. But thank you for pointing that out. All right. So when you have longitudinal traction on the arm, on the forearm of a child, what can happen is the radial head will get subluxed, and the annular ligaments can either be torn, partially torn, or it can get trapped in between the uh, distal humerus and the radial head. Okay, so longitudinal traction, pulls everything out, radial head gets subluxed, and there's some sort of an injury to the annular ligament. So do you need x-rays in a kid who you suspect a radial head subluxation or a nursemaid's elbow? I guess it says it up there. But if they have a good story for it, and they don't have any obvious swelling or deformity, and you're able to reduce it, and they start moving it again, there's no reason to get an x-ray. Okay, now if they have... If they have a significant swelling or deformity, or you think you're able to reduce it, and you try and you're not able to, or you think you reduce it and they still don't start moving it, then I would go ahead and get an x-ray. But if they meet these other clinical criteria, you don't necessarily need to get an x-ray at all. Have most of you guys, I'm sure the second and third years, have reduced some of these. Have any of the first years had a chance to reduce any of these? Jesse, you have. Still, you're in the PZR right now, aren't you? You got a chance to do any? Not yet. There's a couple different ways to do it. I like to do the extension and pronation. So what you want to do is you have, did you talk about this with your joint reduction thing last week at all, Greg, or not? Oh, no. Yeah, it's, it's that's fine. It's, it's fairly simple and straightforward. But I like to palpate right over the radial head. That way you can kind of, if it, when it pops back in, you can really get a good feel that it's actually popping back in. And I like to do the extension hyperpronation where you actually grab their hand and extend and pronate. Um, alternatively, you can do the flexion supination, okay? What I'll do is if I do the extension hyperpronation and I don't feel it go back in, then I'll just come right back and do the flexion supination, okay? So you just kind of do this and then back like this. And usually you can feel it pop back in relatively easily. No, no. I mean, it's if it's going to go back in, it goes back in pretty quickly and pretty easily, and I kind of just sneak up on them and do it quick. I'm kind of mean, but yes, Dr. Hoger for the reduction. Yes. What injury is this? Seriously, really. So glad this one is being recorded. Um, <laughs> Harmon, what injury is this? Are you Harmon? And it's wrong. And it's wrong. <laughs> You're not Harmon, and the answer's wrong. What's that called? We know it's not Galeazzi. Yes. Sorry, Dirks. That's what you get for coming in late. <laughs> well, you were exactly. So, if you look at the radial capitellar line, see how it doesn't intersect the capitellum. right? So then you know you have a radial head dislocation, and that's the Monteggia fracture. So it's the distal third of the ulna with the dislocation of the radial head. You oftentimes will have an associated radial nerve paralysis or paresis, and these require an ortho consult in the ETC because this generally is operative fixation. So there's a number of different ways that you can try to remember. We talked about the Galois fracture last week, right? And there's a number of different ways you can try to remember the difference between the two. Um, those are a couple of mnemonics that you'll see in a, you can know, see in different places. I like the grimace one better myself, just because it has both what's fractured and which joint is injured. Okay, um, but you know, pick whichever one you want. Um But that's a question that oftentimes comes up on your boards. You know, what often comes up on the boards, too, is what nerve is affected. So that's kind of the question that they often ask associated of with these types of fractures, too. So she didn't just surface boards, and that's what you said. No, oh, really? They didn't ask so much which one's a Montagia, which one's a Galeazzi fracture. Which nerve was? There you go. And what do we have here? It's not subtle. Yeah, an elbow dislocation. So generally those are posterior. Um, about 60% of these will have an associated fracture with them. So, you know, some people will say for a simple shoulder dislocation you don't need to get films. That sounds That's pretty reasonable. But I would always get a film on someone who has an elbow dislocation just because of the much higher likelihood of an associated fracture. Okay. And then, again, similarly to the other injuries, um, neurovascular injury is certainly a common common occurrence with these as well. So these usually can be reduced in the ETC. Um, I had one two weeks ago, three weeks ago, f- with a guy who had actually been out for three weeks. So he dislocated it in Texas and waited three weeks to come up to get it looked at. Um, that one we weren't able to reduce in the ETC, surprisingly enough. And the ortho resident actually wanted to do it without sedation for some reason. Yeah, not a good idea. We obviously use sedation, but don't let anybody ever try to tell you to do one of these without sedation because they're oftentimes not the easiest. I mean, you can get them back in, but they're oftentimes not the easiest to get back in. Um, Once you get it reduced, you need to do a good repeat neurovascular exam. These folks can be put in a posterior long arm splint with their wrist in neutral, so you don't want them pronated, you don't want them supinated, you want their wrist in neutral when you put these people in the posterior long arm splint and they need ortho follow-up within a week. And that's it. Any questions about this stuff, guys? Yes. It's because I'm, yeah. Anyway. All right. Trying to get us back on time.